When you look at just those fundamentals of credit as an example, as a way to really, you know, again, achieve homeownership, achieve entrepreneurship, there were just some fundamental financial health gaps uh, within our minority communities. Welcome back to the Women on the Move podcast. I'm your host, Sam Saperstein. In this episode, I'm speaking with Alice Rodriguez, head of community impact here at JPMorgan Chase. Alice dives into the 30 billion racial equity commitment that the bank set last year, and she shares some of the early wins that we've seen. We also talk about her work as chairwoman for the U.S. Hispanic Chamber of Commerce and the importance of recognizing Hispanic Heritage Month. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Alice, it's great to have you here on the Women on the Move podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Sam. Just what a wonderful opportunity. I appreciate it. So I would love to start out by talking about your current role as head of community impact for JPMorgan Chase. And as part of this, you lead our bank's $30 billion racial equity commitment. And this is a really important commitment that the bank has made to really try to drive reducing systemic racism in our society and also helping a more inclusive recovery from the pandemic. So can you start by talking about this work? What is it? What are the factors that drive some of the wealth gaps that we see in this country? And how are we approaching this work? So I'll start off with, you know, there've been a lot of people throughout the firm that have been focused on what are the key drivers of the wealth divide in this country. And so a lot of that foundation was built last summer. And from that work, we pulled out the most you know, prevalent, the most key drivers of what the wealth divide issues are in our country. And we came up with what we felt like were the areas that were going to have the biggest impact. So one, for instance, is home ownership. When you look at you know, wealth creation in this country, owning your home is the single biggest asset that many people have. And we recognize for Black and Latino uh, consumers, there isn't as much home ownership there. And in fact, there's a about anywhere between a 30 and 35% gap between Black and Latino home ownership as well. The second key area that kind of popped was entrepreneurship. So many minorities really do leverage being an entrepreneur to build their wealth. And again, lots of different issues that were recognized for minority business owners. The third component was really around financial health and recognizing that when you look at just those fundamentals of credit as an example, as a way to really, you know, again, achieve homeownership, achieve entrepreneurship, there were just some fundamental financial health gaps uh, within our minority communities. So really understanding what they are and more importantly, putting the resources there to address that. Another component uh, was really around, you know, supplier diversity and tied very much to the entrepreneurship, but, you know, were Black and Brown entrepreneurs really getting the right opportunity to participate in supplier diversity? And then, you know, the last component was really around our investment within, you know, minority depository institutions. So in a nutshell, Sam, the way to think about the $30 billion is it's really a lending commitment above and beyond what we've already done for Black and Brown consumers as well as entrepreneurs. And it's just really giving people more access to capital. 
So what I love about this is this is really a business-driven and business-led kind of commitment. It's not being led at a philanthropy. It's really owned by our businesses. Can you talk about why that's so important to have those colleagues really drive this, given the commitments we're trying to achieve? The point of all this work, Sam, is to create something that's sustainable, that will go way beyond five years. And the only way to successfully do that is to have the businesses think about that in their strategic work and how they think about growth in their businesses as they peel back, you know, what are some of the opportunities that they're missing as a result of just the the way that they're approaching their business. And so when the business owns it and the business sees the opportunity, particularly in these two communities, you'll have more of a chance, right, that you'll have success in the long term. And I thought it was really genius, to be honest, for the OC members and the, the team that first started thinking about the $30 billion that, you know, it didn't need to be a philanthropic commitment for perspective. In 2019, if you looked at FDIC data, the median net worth for a white household was 188,000. For a Latino household, it was 36,000. Mm-hmm. And for a black household, it was 24,000. So that's a pretty big gap. And you're not going to narrow it to be candid in five years. But if the business owns it, you have a better chance in the long term, you'll narrow it. I mean, it is shocking to see the numbers like that and completely agree. We have to take action on so many things to really drive that down across the board. You know, what impact have you seen so far from these commitments, especially for women? I think it's a great question because as we know, uh, Sam, you know, women are starting businesses at a faster rate in general, and then minority women, especially are starting businesses, they're head of households or decision makers. So the impact that we've seen is that the businesses are using that lens now. And as an example, our senior business consultants, which was, this was a new position that was born out of this effort, were in the business bank, they recognized that many entrepreneurs entrepreneurs and particularly entrepreneurs of color really needed mentorship and help. And, you know, everything from like the technical assistance part, but also the business planning piece and sort of like that candid person that you could really talk to about some of the challenges in your business. So recently we had one event that was super successful. It was a Black Women's Forum in Chicago. There were about 6,000 small business owners that attended. We were one of the main sponsors. And within that sponsorship, we allowed for 10 business owners to display their products, their goods, their business at the actual expo, which was just the feedback we got from them was phenomenal, right? They had never had the opportunity to showcase their products. They got to network, talk to a lot of different people. Our team with Chase did a specific workshop on the importance of capital and how to think about capital that was very well attended. The second example is as a result of the success of that, we've committed to the Los Angeles Latina Fest that is going to occur in October. Again, very similar in nature in terms of what the objective is and the opportunity to get in front of lots of Latina women. So I use that as an example because I would venture to say that most likely in the past, the Business Bank has always done wonderful events. I don't know that they have been as intentional that it should be women of color, like in these two examples. And I think we're going to see more of that as we get through these five years. So as you think about this moment in history where we've been really dealing with racial inequity and racial injustice for a long time, do you think the Latina community is being represented in this conversation to the degree that you would like to see it? 
Yeah, I mean, my very candid answer is no. I've been very, very worried about that. I've been very vocal as the chairwoman of the United States Hispanic Chamber of Commerce that we're not paying enough attention to this. And it doesn't really make sense because I just gave you the FDIC numbers in terms of median net worth. And you can see that there's the very similar challenges just around, you know, access to capital for the Latino community, financial education, et cetera, et cetera. And so just to put it in perspective here, the recent census data that just came out a couple of weeks ago said the entire U.S. grew 7%. Latinos grew 51%. Very, very significant. It's 62 million people in this country, so just under 20%. And when you look at the growth of this you know, community over the next you know, three decades, it's going to be a very significant percentage of the overall population. And if you think about GDP, if you think about the drivers of the economy, you know, this would be a segment that, you know, people would pay a lot of attention to. And it's a very young cohort. You know, the average age is 30. The most common age in the family is 11. You know, the opportunity to begin financial education with young families, young children, et cetera, is right in front of us. And we can't miss this opportunity. So you just mentioned your involvement with the U.S. Hispanic Chamber of Commerce. So you're the chairwoman for that organization, which is fantastic. How did you get involved? in that? You know, what responsibilities do you have as part of that? And how does that dovetail with your work at JP Morgan? I have been involved in, you know, just different community organizations throughout my entire career, Sam. And early on in my career, I was asked to join the Dallas Hispanic Chamber of Commerce. And it was a great opportunity, you know, for me to get involved. And, you know, at one point in my career, I was in business banking and ran business banking. So it made a lot of sense for me to be on that board. And, you know, I could see firsthand, you know, some of the challenges that Latino business owners were really experiencing. And I just have always had a very strong passion for entrepreneurs. You know, anybody who puts their entire life savings borrows every nickel they can from family and friends, et cetera. I just have the deepest respect for because they just stress out every week on, I hope I can make payroll on Friday. That's how I was tapped to be on the national board six years ago. And I would say like, you know, obviously the duties are all about the oversight of the organization. Are we focused on the right areas? Are, you know, we have responsibility around advocacy, ensuring that our lawmakers are really paying attention to what some of the legislation can do, both positive and then negative. And then, you know, education plays a really important part. So we like to say at the U.S. Hispanic Chamber of Commerce, we have three C's that we're focused on. One is capital, obviously, and that takes a lot, there's a lot of different sources of capital that we want to educate our entrepreneurs on. The second really is on connections. And what we mean by there is really helping our business owners with procurement opportunities, both at the government level, as well as at the local levels and with corporates. And the last is really capacity building because we have 260 affiliate chamber members throughout the country. So I love how you've been so involved in that organization from a local level and up through a national level. Are there insights that you've gathered, you know, through your work at the chamber that really would enable us to reach this community in a better way? You know, how might we better interact or reach the Latino community across all these dimensions? 
Yeah, it's a great question. I think that the one thing that we have to really address is trust, because whether it's the Black community or the Latino community, you know, trust always comes out as an opportunity for banks to really establish. And we have to recognize specifically for the Latino community, people that come from other Latin American countries, the bank doesn't really have the same, you know, reputation that a bank here in the U.S. would have. There's just a lot of horror stories that have happened in their countries that the bank is actually the last place they're going to come for help on what they need for their business. So, you know, one thing for us to do is really leverage the organizations that have built trust with the community. And I think that we have a way at times of talking about business in like very formal kind of stuffy terms. We just need to like have simple language that, you know, makes sense to everybody And I think the last thing I'll just mention is, you know, really being intentional about culture and Spanish language, because uh, there's been a lot of great research that shows that when companies can really incorporate culture into how they're approaching, right, some of these Hispanic-owned businesses, they have a better chance of that business, you know, choosing us as an example, because we get them. And that's super, super important. And then the language is just, you know, obviously many Hispanic business owners, maybe our second generation, third generation. But again, research just shows that if they're bilingual, they're seeing the intentionality of the organization to also speak the second language that they have. And that's just an important driver for this community. Yeah, I'd love for you to say more about culture. You know, what does that mean to you in terms of our local branches and the people that we have working with the community? What can they do to really ensure that they are culturally aware and more steeped in the culture in order to reach the community? You know, I think that some of the simple things that we're looking at right now in our branches are great examples. Let's make sure that the artwork in the branch represents that of the community. Let's make sure that, you know, again, we've got, you know, Spanish language in some of our merchandising in the in the branch. You know, what are the holidays that are most important to the Hispanic culture, right? Independence Day, September 16th is a great example. And I think when people walk in and they see, they recognize that the organization really realizes like how important that piece is to them. And it's a great acknowledgement. So we do celebrate Hispanic Heritage Month in the U.S., starts September 15th to October 15th. And we look at that as a cultural moment, certainly internally at the firm, but also with our customers. What does that month mean to you? How do you like to acknowledge it? I just have a lot of pride when we celebrate that month because I just know like the sacrifices that, you know, my mom in particular made for our family. There's just so much beauty in the family and culture and the faith and the traditions, you know. Uh, my sister and I realized like years ago that our mother just did a wonderful job of, you know, feeding us and she was a tremendous, you know, cook. And every Christmas is a tradition that we make tamales. And we realized that we had no idea how to make them. We always helped her, but we didn't really understand like everything she put in it. Before, you know, she passed away, we sat one Saturday, I brought my daughters in, they were younger at that time, and we wrote down the recipe. 
And it was just so beautiful the way my mom was explaining to my daughters, like why they use this spice or why we want to, you don't want to use your mixer. I know your mom wants to use the mixer, but I do it by hand. So we wrote it down when my mom passed away, right? We said, okay, we got to carry on this tradition. And so every first week in December now, I've done it for 10 years. I invite my daughters if they're in town and my cousins. I have a lot of first cousins and it's just like a big party and we make tomorrow. And the unfortunate thing is we haven't exactly gotten them just like hers, but feel like we're making progress. You're trying and I'm sure uh, her spirits with you as you do that. And that is Mm -hmm. so beautiful. Thank you for that. Mm -hmm. You've talked about her, you know, often I've heard you speak about her and her impact on you. What else did she teach you from, you know, values perspective, things that you might carry into the workforce? You know, she was a very hard worker. So uh, she definitely instilled in me and my siblings a very strong work ethic. Don't complain. She was kind of a no-nonsense person. And it's so funny because, you know, she impacted not just me and my siblings, but my friends. You know, I was in my hometown this last weekend for Labor Day and got to see one of my girlfriends. And she said, man, Alice, your mom was a force of nature. She was just so blunt. And so, you know, it would be like, look, life's not fair. So just get over it. Just get over it. Do not dwell there. You know, you've got to, you know, stay focused, you know, sort of like on the prize. And she just had this really interesting way to get over, under, over, around an obstacle that really kind of stood out for me. And I really think that I learned leadership at a very early age because, you know, she did what she had to, to put food on the table and to care for her family, which meant that she had to count on her children to take care of, like, in my instance, you know, take care of her sister. That's your job. You know, you need to make sure she gets to where she needs to be and so on and so forth. One of the most important values that my sister and I always talk about that we got from our mom was we can be scrappy. We do not have to have perfection. You know, we know how to be scrappy. And I think that has served me well over the last 35 years. Oh, I'm sure you've seen and done so many things. And I'd love to talk about that. What was your strategy when it came to building your career? You know, doing so many different roles and being in different groups and even different geographies has really given you such a richness of perspective and experience. Was that deliberate? Did you, you know, think about things with, you know, two, five years down the road? How did you approach your career? Yeah, I would say it was more organic. I'd love to tell you that I had this master plan, but I really didn't. I think once I learned something, I recognized like the importance of being able to network with other leaders. It wasn't something that came naturally to me, but I was blessed enough to have a mentor who really like pointed that out to me. Like, Alice, like how much time do you spend getting to know the other leaders in the organization that you don't have anything to do with your line of business? And I just thought that was such a foreign question. Like, what? Why would I do that? You know, like, and so he just really impressed upon me that you know, you may not do this forever, like this one job that you're doing. And, you know, there might be some other things that interest you. So the more time you spend with them, the more time you'll see what those other businesses have to offer, and you might find yourself being drawn to them. So, you know, once I kind of got that in my head, I was a little bit more intentional about getting to know, you know, the other leaders. And I think that the thing that always kind of drove me is, you know, I love learning like the challenge of just starting something new, even though it's stressful, it's just a a good motivator for me. And so every time I saw the opportunity, you know, in some cases I raised my hands and other times 
it just happened to me. And I just, I learned so much from that experience too, you know, because when things happen to you, you know, how you react to them is probably some of the most important lessons that you'll get, you know, for your career. And I'd love to know once you do retire, what do you hope will happen with this going forward over the next few years? I believe that the commitment will get bigger because, you know, $30 billion is a lot of money, but it's not enough. It truly is not enough. And the great news is that we're recognizing that. And a quick example will be the investment that we committed to make in minority depository institutions. You know, the original commitment was like $30 million, I believe, and it's up to $75 million right now. And it is a real testament, right, that recognizing like, wow, this could work. And the things that the minority depository institution is focused on is the right in alignment with us. And so it is that the commitment, you know, gets bigger and that in addition to obviously making the commitment that we originally made in the five years that we have embedded into the lines of business, everything from thinking through practices and policies and product and marketing, that that's all been influenced in service to ensuring that we're doing a good job of providing those opportunities to our Black and Latinx consumers and entrepreneurs. It's like totally embedded. Like in other words, you won't even need a community impact group anymore because the businesses have totally absorbed that lens in their business on a day-to-day. That's right. I think that is extremely powerful when it is just something everyone is doing and we see the numbers as a result of it from just what we do on a regular basis. So Alice, I know in a lot of the work that we're doing, we really try to anchor this into our communities. We know our partners on the ground are the ones that are closest to what the communities need and we really you know, value those partnerships. Can you talk about any local events or programs that we've done in communities that you think really speaks to the power of what we can do on a local level? Oh, I just, I love that question, uh, Sam, because, you know, we like to say in my team that, you know, national is not a place. Like, in other words, we have this national $30 billion commitment, but it's not a place, you know, commitment is being delivered locally in, you know, all the places we do business. And so we have prioritized just to get started 15 specific cities that we want to double down on. But the idea here is that, you know, all the cities are important, but a good example to share with you, because I was just so excited about this a couple weeks ago is the Houston MLT, the community development group that Lawrence Bailey runs, corporate responsibility, and the local lines of business all got together to really talk about what's the best way to let our community know what we're doing and how we are leaning in and trying to meet the community where they are. So I give a lot of credit here to the community manager that one of the community managers that we have in Houston, Kimberly Evans, and then Keisha Porsche, who is one of the MLT co-chairs in Houston. They all decided that they would put on a Houston Economic Summit. And they did it in the uh, Fifth Ward in in Houston, where this is where we're building uh, one of our community centers. We already have the branch there, but we're adding the community room and all of that. And they held their summit in a historical theater that, you know, has been redone over the years to hold, you know, community events. 
So it's in the heart of the Fifth Ward, right? This is going to the community, not asking them to come to some swanky hotel in downtown Houston. And then there were three specific panels that day that focused on our racial equity commitment, that just focused on allyship and how important it is to, you know, obviously have allies all over the place, regardless of what color people are. And then there was a specific panel that was hosted by Master P, who's a big celebrity in Houston, just talking about some of the challenges of entrepreneurship. Now, when they told me about the event, I kind of wondered, like, are people going to come? You know, we know we're in a very, you know, interesting situation with the pandemic and we're all being very cautious. But the team did a wonderful job of following the guidance that we all follow here uh, for our events. And they had a hundred people, the summit, a hundred, okay? Mostly African-American entrepreneurs, uh, some nonprofits, some consumers. There There were some Latino entrepreneurs there as well. And the dialogue was real. I mean, it was just, it kind of gives me goosebumps, to be honest, because it's the kind of stuff that you're not going to hear at some you know, swanky summit that you're going to go downtown. It is really talking about the barriers and the obstacles that the Black community was having in Houston. And what I was really impressed the most was like, they were having a dialogue. You know what I mean? Like it wasn't this contentious, like, hey, you're not doing this or you're not doing that. Like it was a recognition that we had opportunity but a really nice recognition that we were leaning in, that mm-hmm. we were there with all of the experts. And they were really appreciative of that. After the summit, they had a reception with a lot of you know officials from city council or whether they were from local nonprofits. They had 150 people at that day. So mm-hmm. it just, to me, said, this is what it's all about, right? It's like when we say we're a part of community, that means that we are having the conversations that are direct and that we're listening to the things that are opportunities for us as a bank and that are gaps. And we're not getting defensive. We're not going to do everything that perhaps the community wants us to do. But the fact that we'll just take the time to listen and that it's not just the corporate responsibility colleagues that are there. It's the businesses that are there listening to this feedback. Uh, just a wonderful event. And I just thought this is a template for us to use in all our other cities on how the local market leadership team in you know collaboration with community development and with the line of business leads can really demonstrate to the community that we are serious about our racial equity commitment. I love that. And I look forward to seeing so many more of those events in other markets around the country, which I know your team will keep leading. Thank you so much, Alice, for speaking with us. It's so great to hear about the work and your career. And again, very happy we've had this bonus time together with you at the bank. So thank you. (laughs) Thank you, Sam. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Alice. She's been a trailblazer in her field and an inspiration as she leads our work to advance racial equity and bridge the wealth divides throughout the country. Alice has personally been a great friend and colleague to me, and I'm really proud of the work that we've done together. The mission of Women on the Move is to help women in their professional and personal lives. Our goal is to introduce you to people with great ideas, inspiring stories, and a passion to make a difference. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe so you won't miss any others. For J.P. Morgan Chase's Women on the Move, I'm Sam Saperstein. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank N.A. is a member of the FDIC.